Hello, everybody, and welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading the book Betsy Tim Boom by Mike Evans with permission from Time Worthy Books, and we are on Chapter 45. A few months later, we are awakened by the whistle for morning roll call. Corey and I climbed from the bunk and filed out into the cool morning air. Summer had ended and autumn was rapidly approaching. We formed into ranks and stood quietly. Most of us expected to march down the street to the Phillips facility. In spite of my worry about sharing the vitamins, the bottle had not run out. I carried it every day in my pocket, and when someone asked for some, I gave them two drops on their tongue. It seemed impossible that it would last this long. Yet every day at noon, there were still two drops for me. I felt better by taking them, but I knew vitamins alone would never solve my medical problems. That morning, my legs felt heavy and my joints ached. I wondered if I had energy to make it to the factory at the end of the street. Our regular officer appeared and scanned the ranks, as he'd done every morning since we arrived. Then he nodded to the man beside him, and roll call began. When that was finished, we were ordered to face left, which was odd, because we normally went to the right. Then rank by rank, they directed us down the streets towards the camp entrance. Flanked by soldiers on either side, we continued past the gate on the dirt road we had walked when we first arrived. As we started down the hill away from the camp, I could see that we were all in a single line that stretched to the bottom and up the other side. No one said a word. In a little while, we came to the railroad tracks at the same place we'd arrived months before. A line of cattle cars awaited, and as we drew near, the soldiers divided us between them, forming groups in front of each car. There are still no loading ramps, so we were ordered to climb inside. The floor in the car was about shoulder height, which meant we had no leverage to hoist ourselves up. Those who tried fell to the ground. Frustrated by our failure to comply with their orders, the soldiers surged us forward. Confusion followed, and the soldiers shouting for us to move, and prisoners screaming and crying. Then the beating started. A soldier struck one of the women to our right with the butt of his rifle, and blood sputtered across Corey's cheek. Alarmed by it, she glanced back at me and barked, Stay with me. Then she elbowed her way to the front of our group with me holding tightly to her dress. When we reached the car, she grabbed me by the shoulder and lifted me up until I was able to place my hands against the floor of the car and swing a knee over. Then she gave me a shove and I tumbled inside. Standing above her, I reached down to help her up. Then we gave a hand to others and helped others up. Slowly, the rail car filled, and as it did, the beating and shouting subsided. When the last person climbed aboard, the soldiers slid the door closed and latched it in place. The morning was cool and pleasant. We had made the walk from the camp to the train without getting hot, but as the day wore on, the temperature rose. By noon, the heat was stifling inside the rail car, and as before, there was no sanitary facilities. Before long, the place reeked. In a while, the rail car gave a jarring jolt and then started forward rolling slowly at first before steadily picking up speed. We had been standing for more than six hours, and although there was no room to sit as individuals, we figured out a way to sit at once. When we were settled in place, the rhythmic motion of the car rocked most of people to sleep. I was drowsy, too, and rested my head on Corey's shoulder. "'Are you still angry with me?' I asked quietly. "'Angry with you?' Her voice sounded alert. "'What about?' sharing the vitamin bottle. No, she sighed. I'm not angry about that. 
Never was. I just wanted to have what you need. You know, if I'd kept the bottle hidden at my workstation, hoarding it only for myself, it would still be there. But by centering it to the Lord and His will and bringing it to the barracks to share, I have it with us now. She nodded in agreement. You are right. God always knows best. Three hours later, the train came to stop and the doors opened. A breeze swept through the car and I thought we were at our destination. Then two soldiers appeared in the doorway, passed a bucket of water inside. They quickly shoved the door closed and in a few minutes the train started forward again. Those seated nearest the door took a drink from the bucket, then passed it overhead to those behind. Between the sloshing and the gulping, the water was consumed before the bucket reached us. After a while, someone sitting near the far end of the car looked out between the wooden slats that formed the wall. I think we're in Germany, she said. Others turned to see, and a discussion began about where we were. This discussion soon became an argument, and for a moment I thought a fight would break out. But before long, the heat and the hunger overtook passion, and everyone fell silent. By the middle of the afternoon, two women had died. One at the end of the car, where the heat was particularly bad, and the other just a few meters in front of us. Both died quietly. We had no way to inform anyone, and we were forced to sit with the bodies as the train continued through the night and into the following day. Finally, at noon at the second day, we came to a stop again. This time, when the doors opened, we looked out to see a freight depot with ramps for loading and unloading cargo. Armed soldiers lined the tracks and stood watch over the depot. Trucks were parked nearby, and I thought they were going to use them to transport us wherever it was we were going. But then I saw machine guns mounted in back and wondered if we'd survive to reach the ground. With the freight ramp at railroad height, we had only to step from the train and walk to the ground. There was no shouting or yelling and no one was beaten. Just a simple order, out, and everyone began to unload. As Corey and I came from the car, I noticed an acid odor in the air that wrinkled my nose. What's that? Smells like something burning. Like a pot left on the stove too long, I added. A smokestack stood in the distance, and a thin gray line of smoke rose above it, then spread out to form a cloud that filled a large swath of the sky. Sunlight filtered through it, cast an eerie glow, as if the sun were in a perpetual eclipse. From the railroad, we walked down a dirt road and up a low hill. When we reached the crest, we saw a lake in the hollow below. As we continued in that direction, the sight of water was too much to resist, and suddenly everyone broke into a run towards it, laughing and giggling as they went. I was fatigued beyond exhaustion and could hardly put one foot ahead of the other, so I urged Corey to run on ahead, and she did. I watched with a smile as she dashed to the water's edge, knelt on both knees, and plunged her head beneath the surface. A few minutes later, I caught up with her and did the same. For almost an hour, the soldiers stood at a distance and watched as we drank and washed and played in the lake. And the water was clear, bright, and cool. And for those few seconds, we almost forgot that we were prisoners and once again became young girls on a holiday. Then all too soon, the soldiers ordered us out and we continued along the road. I was glad for the water, but even more to see the smile on Corey's face and to hear her laugh again. In a little while, we rounded a curve, and the high brick walls of the prison came into view. Word passed through the camp that we were at Ravensbrück, a women's prison on the east side of Germany. 
I read an article about it in the newspaper when it opened in 1939, before the occupation, when we could still get reliable information from our local newspaper. We later heard about it in reports on the radio. Even then, it was a notorious reputation. As with Vault, the permanent part of the prison was surrounded by a wire fence about four meters high. Inside the fenced area was tents, and the ground beneath them was covered with fresh hay. I remember the smell even now. As we came through the gates, soldiers guided us to the tents, and we collapsed on the hay to rest. Just as quickly, though, we jumped to our feet, scratching and digging our hair as tiny lice attacked us. For the rest of the day, we complained, and finally a female guard appeared with a pair of scissors. We passed it through the group and cut each other's hair in an effort to reduce the insect problems, but it afforded little relief. Autumn had arrived in eastern Germany, and the air was cool even in the middle of the day. At night, it was uncomfortably chilly. Sleeping on damp ground in cold temperatures had a devastating effect on my health. The cough I picked up at vault worsened, and then the rains began again. In addition to all of that, the food was awful, and diarrhea became a serious problem. Our latrine was an open ditch not far from the tents, and I made frequent trips to it. Every day, I became thinner and weaker. On the tenth night, we were rousted from the tents after the evening meal and moved through the wall's main gate to the large building inside the permanent prison. I was not sure what use it had to be originally used for, but for us it was an inmate processing center. I glanced around for a clue about what would happen next. A group of soldiers ahead of us were just visible up the hall. They were naked, and I saw them enter a room to the right. From the look of it, they appeared to be headed to the showers. The thought of a chance to wash put a smile on my face, and I hoped that that was what awaited us, too. Before we reached the end of the hall, we came to a clerk who demanded all our possessions. I had only the bottle of vitamins and the Bible, and I wanted to give up neither. A guard saw the bottle in my pocket and took it. But before they discovered the Bible, my stomach cramps returned, and Corey asked if I could go to the restroom. One of the guards told us to use the shower and relieve myself over the drain. With Corey's help, I hurried in that direction. The group that was ahead of us had just left the showers. Water still dripped from the shower heads as I squatted over the drain. Corey held me by the arm to help steady me while I relieved myself. We'd known each other through many circumstances, yet right then I found it deeply embarrassing to be there with her like that, but I had little choice. I was so weak I could not stand on my own. And when I was finished, Corey said, give me the Bible. What are you going to do with it? Hide it. Where? She pointed to a stack of wooden benches along the wall. There. Do you think it's safe? I think it's our only chance, she replied. She was right. Vitamins were no threat to the Nazi ideology. In fact, it was perfectly consistent with all they espoused. The love of human achievement power and vigor, the drive to attain it. But the Bible was another matter. If they found it, they would not only destroy it, but punish us as well. Perhaps even the entire group. Once again, I saw a principle at work. The only way to save it was to lose it. Jesus talked about that often. So I took the Bible from around my neck and handed it to Corey. Then she tucked it out of sight among the benches. We came from the shower room and joined the others who had formed a line in the hall. Moments later, we were forced to strip naked and hand over our clothes. Male soldiers stood nearby, and I was humiliated to be seen by them. 
but I was too sick to complain. When all our clothes had been collected, someone ordered us into the showers, and we dutifully filed inside. Water sprayed from the shower heads as we moved beneath them. It was tepid, but not cold, and felt good. I let it wash over my head and did my best to rid my scalp of the lice. In a few minutes, the water switched off and we were directed to the next room. Towels were stacked there and we dried off. I noticed that the skin of my arms hung loosely. All the fat was gone and only the muscle remained. Even that was less than before. Somewhere in the shuffle of leaving the shower room and picking up a towel, Corey retrieved the Bible. A cart near the wall to the right was piled with thin cotton prison dresses. Another next to it held poorly made shoes that required no laces. We sorted through them to find ones that fit us and put them on. Through all of that, Corey concealed the Bible from view until we were dressed, and then she placed the cord around her neck and tucked it out of sight beneath her dress. In the next room, we came to a table where where several men were seated. As we stepped to the table, one of the men checked my records and assigned me a number. Another picked up a tattoo stamp and configured it to the form of the assigned number. Before I realized it and what had happened, a female guard came behind me, slipped the top of my dress off to the left shoulder, and grabbed my arm, held them tightly to her side. Thus restrained, a man at the table stood and dipped the tattoo stamp in ink and slammed it against my chest. He smiled as he struck me and watched while the ink mixed with blood from the needle pricks trickled down my chest. I was prisoner 66729. Next week it will be chapter 46 and we'll learn more about Robinsbrook. I love you. I'm praying for you and bye-bye for now.